1: Welcome, ironradio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowery. I am an exercise physiology and nutrition professor and a former competitive bodybuilder. Yeah, And
2: this is Phil Stevens. I'm a strength coach, I'm a powerlifter, Highland Games athlete, um, and run Strength Guild.
1: Awesome. Uh, and we have uh, Chad Waterbury, who I'll describe as a neurobiologist and strength coach. And, you know, Chad, you can fill us in a little bit with more detail in a minute. Um, this is our second interview with Chad. Um, because his book on high-frequency training, I think, makes some really nice observations uh, about other sports and how they hypertrophy so wildly. And, you know, maybe there's actually an alternative to the uh, decimate and recover for multiple days model as far as muscle growth. Um, but before we get to Chad, just quickly, I've got a little bit of um, science news. In fact, I had so much stuff come across my desk this week, I had to almost... Arrange it by theme. <laughs> um, so these all, um, some of this is just interesting. Uh, some of this is generally related to body fatness. And maybe it's a good time of year to talk about this. But um, I'll just march through these quickly, and then Phil can uh, catch us up with some reader mail or listener mail. Strength and Muscle Sport News. Um, this first one says um, low serum EPA to arachidonic acid ratio in male subjects is associated with visceral obesity. Uh, and I don't think I have to tell most listeners to consider their um, their fish oils, but um, Kana Inui, I, I believe is how it's pronounced. Um, this is nutrition metabolism, spanking new, uh, 2013 stuff. Um, I'll cut to the chase. As far as the background, it says the present study investigated the correlation between EPA, DHA, and arachidonic acid, which, listeners, that's uh, fatty acid, long-chain fatty acid in cell membranes, that actually is created partly through omega-6 fat intake, typical vegetable oil intake. Um, And then when you take EPA and DHA from fish oils, it can bump it out of the membrane and change the cellular function. Uh, Anyway, findings. This was in Japanese uh, men. Uh, Some had diabetes or hypertension or what have you, but it says measurement of visceral fat using bioelectrical impedance – And you can, in fact, do that now if you're not familiar. You can look at visceral fat with BIA. It says they they looked at visceral fat and they correlated it with um, the different fatty acids. It says the EPA to arachidonic acid ratio correlated positively with age um, and negatively with waist circumference. It says stepwise regression analysis demonstrated that age and uh, visceral fat correlated significantly and independently with the EPA to arachidonic acid ratio. In other words, get more EPA in your diet. You're probably going to end up with lower gut fat. Uh, and I think a lot of listeners are onto this idea that um, things like diabetes and visceral adipose tissue these are very related to a low-grade inflammatory state. So this is just more stuff. You know, I mean, the the studies just keep rolling. And I know that fish rolls have gotten a little bit of um, negative press in the news, not because they're not safe, because you know, there's always this back and forth in science. Maybe they don't, they're not as great as we thought they were, but you know, they're so pluripotent. And I think it's because we, we're actually ex- experiencing a deficiency in these things. So you go seek them on purpose. You know, the, the food industry, McDonald's is not going to provide you with lots of EPA, for example. So, um, uh, gut fat, get it reduced with EPA. It's interesting. Um, now it's just, that's just a correlational model, but it's suggestive. Um, this second one is almost kind of funny. I got this through Joey Antonio at the ISSN. It says uh, sildenafil, uh, Viagra, right? Helps helps turn bad white adipose tissue into good, healthy brown adipose tissue. And uh, now imagine, you know, this erection drug because of the blood flow effects, it's actually going to change blood flow into white fat and turn it to brown fat. And listeners, if we've talked about this before, but if you're not familiar, white fat's really, of course, bad. If there's excess, but it is an inflammatory tissue and, and brown fat's much more related to um, metabolic rate and heat production and that sort of thing. That's why they're calling it good fat. But this is from um, medical news today, uh, April, 2013. So it says, although sildenafil is best known for promoting erections, it may also serve as a weight loss aid by coaxing our bodies to store more healthy brown fat relative to uh, unhealthy white fat. Um, this is from a study that appeared in the FASEB Journal. It says there's a growing need for novel treatments against obesity, uh, said Alexander Pfeiffer, who's, an, who's a MUDFUD. He's an MD, PhD, um, re- researcher with this work. Finding new positive effects on existing drugs such as Viagra um, in adipose tissue might help to bridge the uh, period until novel drugs can be developed. So how about that? Change your blood flow knows. and end up with more brown fat. Uh, Interesting. Yeah, you know these off-label uses of drugs. I don't know. It's yeah. interesting. Well, one of my uh,
2: one of my clients has uh, she has a neuromuscular disorder, and uh, they put her on I forget which one is called. You you lose blood flow to your extremities and this and that, and they put her on uh, Cialis. Oh, <coughs> because they found out that it uh, I guess Viagra messes with your eyes a bunch, as well as your well nether region. Um, mm-hmm. Cialis uh, has a direct correlation to just muscle tissue lean muscle tissue and so she's on that how about uh, that interesting stuff
1: yeah yeah Yeah, novel uses for these drugs Uh, anyway it's just kind of entertaining uh this last one uh is right along the lines of something we've discussed many times on the show here but a lot of listeners know that we're proponents of just walking you know good old walking outdoors weighted walking whatever there can actually be some benefits to this and I actually came across this through Twitter. It's from Cardiology Today. Listen to this. Walking and running produce similar improvements in heart health. They look at over 33,000 runners, um, and they looked at a couple of different health parameters like blood pressure and cholesterol and whatnot. And just listen to some of these numbers. Um, I I feel justified in a way, you know, because for years I said, you know, listen, you can actually walk off quite a bit of fat. Mm -hmm. And apparently um, it, it... Equals or may even exceed some of what running will do. This says, um, risk for first-time hypertension was reduced by 4% after running and 7% after walking. Risk for hypercholesterolemia was reduced by 4% after running and 7% after walking. Risk for first-time diabetes was reduced by 12% after running and also 12% after walking. And risk for coronary heart disease was reduced by 4.5% after running versus 9% after walking. So, although statistically some of these don't differ, in some cases, walking is actually mildly better Mm -hmm. for these health effects. It says researchers found no significant differences, uh, for a couple of these, such as, um, hypercholesterolemia. All these numbers are flirting with, um, with significance. A lot of these are. But it says, um, risk reduction was only moderately were marginally better for walking versus running, so I think they're they're trying not to poo poo running. But the bottom line is, yeah. quantitatively, walking is better. It says yeah. it, uh, it does not seem to matter whether these exercises are d- achieved um, by running or walking, uh, according to the researchers.
2: Well, and you gotta for anybody that spends a considerable amount of time lifting weight in a resistance training. There's only we've talked about it before. You only have so many reserves you can pull on for for doing hard stuff. Um you know I think going out for a walk is great. I mean especially if a you know the meat of your time is spent picking up heavy things.
1: Um, yeah, well I, and I'll, I'll tell you we had a listener contact us recently and he said something about you know I love you guys and I'm going to be you know uh, be a supporting member in this and that and he said um you know I'm sad to say that I also like Lane Norton and I know he likes a lot of high intensity interval work and I said mm. you know listen there's more than one way to skin a cat, you know. Yeah. Um I just think if you do too much of the high-intensity interval cardio stuff, you start drifting into cross-trainer land. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just that simple. Uh, I'm not saying that you're going to lose a ton of mu- muscle mass. You just got to really uh, be careful. And maybe it's personal preference because, like yeah. you, Phil, I want to keep my energy for the weights Yeah. You know, as much as I can. I don't want to spend 50% of my time running. And, I mean, yeah. you can look at the literature, and it's very clear. There's a consensus that if you do too much cardio, too much endurance work, it could hamper strength gains, yeah. you know, so um, I just think you've got to be careful with some of that. Yeah. Anyway, but you've got some reader.
2: <sighs> yeah, i got evidence. several things here. N- number one, I want to give um, a week from today. It will be the first meet for uh, the new lifting federation, USSF. So we got the Kansas State Championship. I just drove down the monolith this morning. So it's set up. Uh,
1: oh, I see. I thought you had to take that to get prepared. You were taking no, it down for the meat.
2: I was taking it down for the meat. It's easier oh. to get it down there this weekend than try and rush and do everything in one week. Um, so it's set up down there. I'll be down there next Friday weighing people in. And, uh, yeah, it's looking to be a good meet. We've got at least at least two raw 700-pound squatters coming, a um, couple raw 700-pound deadlifters. You know, I've got, a, of course, a group of ladies that's going to come in there and, and show a lot of men up. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we've, we got we a great day today. This was the last squatting day. So had a lot of people hit their openers for like four and stuff like that. So, uh, you,
1: yeah, want, you like them to hit their openers for a triple,
2: right? Yeah. Yeah and, yeah. and that was a few weeks ago. And, you know, they've come in and hit it for four and five now.
0: So, oh, yeah. uh, yeah, it's a good thing. You know, a lot we got, of confidence there.
2: Yeah. So we, we've got a lot of strong people coming in and uh, it should be a good day. I just wanted to give a, a shout out for that. If you're anywhere in the area, come, there's, does not cost a thing to come watch, so it 's at CrossFit Olathe, a buddy of mine owns it, so he's got a lot of space there. come come see some lifting, and then uh also, I want to give another shout out i'm going uh they 're flying me up to the Great White North next month to give a seminar, so I just want to give a shout out for that. I know they sold a little more than half the spots now, so uh, May eleventh and twelfth are going to be doing two days of hands on stuff at uh CrossFit Sherwood Park, we're going to be doing squat and bench and deadlift and clean and jerk snatch, all that. You can contact Jason Bigaman, J-B-I-G-G-E-M-A-N at gmail.com. So, and, uh, get a spot now, up there.
1: Phil, I shouldn't ask you this on the air, but, um, so is Rob going to be able to be around during that, or is he not going to be able to attend?
2: He's going to he's going to show up. He just doesn't know what time yet. So yeah, he's we've got him on the. Uh, he's going to show up, and uh, hopefully we're going to do Iron Radio live from there, like I talked to you about. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so I got to bring my laptop, and we'll uh, we'll host some questions from from the group.
1: That, no, I think that's like great. That. I think one of the best um, purposes of podcasts is to do some live
2: events. Exactly. You know? So it should be yeah. good. It should be good, and this will be the first time we've uh, any of us have kind of. Done something in Canada. Rob just kind of hides out in his, his igloo. So yeah, he
0: does
2: um, get him out and get me up there, showing some people what to do. It'll be a good time. It's a yeah. uh, hundred dollars a person, so it's reasonable. Mm-hmm. So for two days of stuff. Um, other than that, I want to give. Uh, we got some some listeners that wrote in. Uh, first, Sean wrote and said he found the Iron Radio podcast several months ago, and has been a diehard listener ever since. He started bodybuilding three years ago, and he's gone from what we would call a twit to having a good chunk of mass for someone only a few years in.
1: You know what? I yeah. hate to correct him. We say twink. Twink. Yeah, yeah you're not a twit. That sounds really negative.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: anyway, go ahead. We're not
2: that negative. Yeah. Uh, as I am he, he's 2 weeks out from his first bodybuilding show. Um he's loved listening to episodes during my his morning cardio and on his way back and forth to the gym for workouts and HIIT sessions. Um he's I also follow Lane Norton. Um
1: Oh, this is it. Okay.
2: Yeah, yeah. So the information you guys provide gives concise, condensed information, and every conversation sums up hours and hours. I've spent researching journals and magazines and talking to others who have been involved in the sports for decades. I'm a huge science lover, and my favorite episodes are those that discuss new research, especially if it teaches me how to optimize growth. Beyond training, you give great lifestyle advice that is very applicable to people my age. He's 22. Uh, who are still figuring out what they'd like to do in life. I really appreciate appreciate everything you're doing. I just listened to episode 159 where you, that we entitled "When You When We Grow Up," um, and I knew I could no longer go without being a supporting member. Thanks for the great work, Sean.
0: Awesome. So, Sean. Well,
2: yeah. hey,
1: we're listener supported, and yep. you know, so we appreciate that. And you know what? That was an episode where we were brutally honest too about. Yep how we fell in love with the different fields, how we, you know, went to school or how we make money with it or don't make money with it. You know, there's a lot of honesty in that episode. That's a good yeah, one, I think.
2: There was. I'd also add in there, you know, good luck on your show and post that thing up on the uh listener page. Oh, Hopefully yeah. Hopefully we've got some people in the area. They can come out to support you. I mean, I know if you, if you were in this area and I can get away, I'd, I'd come up. So um, I, I wouldn't be as lean as everybody there. But... <laughs> so yeah, post that up, and if not, I mean at least throw up some pictures afterwards. Let us know how you did. So actually, uh, Phil,
1: that that brings me to um, remember that you mentioned last episode maybe doing a little contest with people just getting outdoors yeah. and claiming spots around town. Let's yeah. sweeten that deal. I'm going to offer um, two mystery gifts uh, for people who send us. We'll, we'll sort of randomly pick the best pictures. Yeah,
2: uh, send so us if something. You don't remember, you, know, you have to go claim a spot and lift on it. Yes. Um, right. It's because Lonnie talked about when he uh you guys crested a, a, a hill or something in, in Wisconsin, wasn't it? Oh, it was or in Minnesota. Minnesota, yeah. We yeah. thought
1: about doing that, but I never I mean I took some pictures, but I never yeah. didn't actually lift up there, so uh if you guys have to
2: take it to the next level.
1: You there you to, go. Yeah. You, Keep it safe, you, you know, but yeah, send us something with you uh getting after it like Arnold Schwarzenegger, lifting in yeah. the straight outdoors. And, uh, exactly. We'll-
2: Get out in the elements and lift. We'll
1: send, you, we'll send you a gift. We'll pick the best two pictures, so just post them up on the Facebook page.
2: And our last one here, I just want to give a huge thank you to, to Matt. Um, he's from Seoul, Korea. He, he's a listener. He's been listening for a while, and um, he, he listened to our podcast where we talked about the iTunes problems and server problems and stuff like that, and uh, he threw down $500 to help us out. So um, that's appreciate that's huge. It's, you know, that's I mean, that's going to that, that uh, that'll go a long ways to helping us out here. And I mean, like, I don't think we I hope we weren't begging for money and trying to get people to. you know, no matter what, we're going to do everything we can to keep things up. But I mean, well, Phil, you, uh,
1: you know what? I mean, let's face it. If you listen to NPR or those anything that's yeah. public, you know, public radio oriented or listener supported. Yeah, I mean, there's always going to be a little bit of that, and yeah. you know, just being transparent, I think, is good because I don't want no, anybody so. to say, "Oh my God, Iron Radio, it's two days late." Well, relax, we're gonna we're on it, <laughs> we're yeah. on, because yeah. we have the we have such a nice core of supporters.
2: So. We do, we do. So, I mean, it's greatly appreciated because that I mean, it's it's Lonnie, like Lonnie just said, we're, we're listener supported. That's that's what keeps the thing going. Um, we're not sitting here raking in a bunch of dough from supplement companies and stuff like that. Um, yeah. So, it's you guys, it's the listeners that that keeps us on the air. So, absolutely and that's all i got you know okay
1: so. hey um so i just wanted to say thanks again chad for joining us
3: oh, i'm happy to be here Lonnie. uh
1: thanks for your patience i'll tell you what before we go to break um let's just recap and then we'll get to some new juicy stuff uh, after the break but uh let's just have you quickly um, explain who you are and maybe briefly redefine uh hft for the listeners
3: well um my title is a uh physiologist with an emphasis on neurophysiology and um my first degree a bachelor's degree was in exercise science and then I thought I wanted to go to medical school so I got a pre-med degree in human biology and uh and then I realized I didn't the nervous system was my passion and since you don't learn about the nervous system in med school then I sought out a graduate degree in um physiology at the University of Arizona and uh, took part on a um study um movement based study for parkinson 's patients and that 's about as neurophysiological as it gets so um, you know uh, people with parkinson 's have compromised movement because um, the motor center of their brain is is um, is off due to imbalance of neurotransmitters so I sort of became that became my for lack of a better term expertise in this field and the goal of that study was to get these somewhat elderly Parkinson's patients to be able to move faster and be stronger. And, um, so then I took what I learned and applied it to, um, you know, a younger, more fit population. It applies to everyone, but I thought, Mm -hmm. my God, if it works this well with older people, imagine what it will do for, um, you know, young fit people who have a nervous system that's, that's healthier. So that's, um, my angle in terms of neurophysiology. And, um, then the all along, um, those years, I was st- I was training and working with people at all levels of the fitness spectrum, and um, here I am now. Okay. So as far as
1: uh, high-frequency training, uh, has this been an evolution for you to move in this direction, or is this one of several major ideas that you- you've had in your career? Uh, do you think this is going to define you in a way, maybe? Maybe just explain a little bit about HFT to listeners.
3: Well, HFT is an acronym that stands for High-Frequency Training, and I define it as training a muscle group uh, or body part, however you want to look at it, four or more times per week. So we all know that the norm, if you look at newsstand magazines or even research, is you need to train a muscle two or three times a week. So that's based on this theory that you need 48 hours of recovery, sometimes more depending on who you ask, and um some observations I had early on, um, and was just that I, I really felt like we were kind of shortchanging the body's physiological uh, adaptive ability to uh, recover from uh, resistance training. And we all, none of us, want to grow muscle slower. So the simple question is, now, how do you grow faster? Well, to me the foundation of HFT is based on what I consider an irrefutable concept. That is more workouts will lead to more growth. I think we can all agree on that. It doesn't matter if you're the most extreme infrequent fan where you just do, you just train each body part once a week. to failure for one set. You know that 10 of those workouts will produce more growth than one of those workouts. So from my standpoint, it's like, okay, how fast, how many workouts can we get? How can we get an intelligent um, progression set up to where you will grow with each workout, stimulate growth, and then you'll repeat it in less time than you think is, is necessary for recovery. And what I've seen over the last 10 years, I've been experimenting with this for the last 10 years, what I've seen over the last 10 years is sometimes it'll just blow your mind what the body is capable of and um you know that's what we're going to get into today um because as i said um, i think we all want to grow muscle faster and to me the most logical question the most logical issue to address is how do we then be able to get more workouts in and not overtrain and not destroy our joints exactly right okay
1: well i'll tell you what everyone um Let's go ahead. We're going to go to break quickly. When we come back, we'll get some more juicy um, information on high-frequency training from Chad, and including some mechanisms, maybe progression models, examples, uh, things like that, because there's so much to talk about that we just didn't get to last time. So we'll be back in just a minute.
0: Hello, Iron Radio listeners, this is Dr. Lowry. I just want to offer an update on the Protein and Resistance exercise book that you hear about in ads at the end of the show. The publisher and I realize that the textbooks have become expensive. This one's $99, so individual electronic chapters have been made available for $20 U.S. dollars. As with Iron Radio, my primary drive here is to get valid, reliable information into the hands of fellow lifters. So if you simply Google CRC Press Protein, you'll find the page where the book is sold. By clicking on eBook purchase at the right, you'll be taken to a page with free introductory parts of the book, as well as each chapter in electronic PDF format. There's also links uh, to other sources in this version. So whether you're interested in an academic heavy hitter like Dr. Peter Lemon sharing Protein's history in strength training, or you're a biochem nerd like me and you want to just look at chapter two on protein synthesis and breakdown, or if you want to cut to the chase and get to a chapter on using protein weight control or case studies, you can now do so for just 20 bucks. So please check out CRC Press Protein and see which chapter topic may interest you. Thanks. Yeah. Okay,
1: welcome, everybody. We're back. This is Phil and Lonnie, and we're spending some time with Chad Waterbury, um, who what I think has done is made some pretty brilliant, actually, observations. Uh, And I think, you know, when you think about Renaissance scientists, for example, why are they so famous? They looked at the world and they made some observations. They wrote them down systematically and they analyzed it. And, you know, they were almost the founders of, of science in many ways. And that's sort of what I see here. Um, Chad, you mentioned last time that whether it's uh, Cirque du Soleil performers or gymnasts or speed skaters, these guys are doing tons of repetitions, and they're huge. Uh, but not just tons of reps in like a continuous uh, event like marathon running, of course, but explosive, right? So you're sort of saying, listen, you can look at some of these other athletes, and this is where I agree with you very much, is – they're huge. Like gymnasts have huge biceps. Speed skaters have enormous quads. And one of the things that always struck me was working with certain power athletes over the years, I've also noticed that many times they look more like bodybuilders than the bodybuilders do. You know, when I look at amateur bodybuilders uh, and compare them to, say, a gymnast, I think there's a lot of gymnasts that could lean, lean down just a little bit and walk onto a local bodybuilding stage and kick butt. Um, yes. You know, and they're not lifting and they're not exercising in the same way at all. Right. So maybe just explain a little bit about, you know, other sports and you know how you've sort of to these observations.
3: Well, Lonnie, one of our <clears throat> goals in this field is to figure out how to grow muscle bigger and stronger and do it as, as fast as possible. So we all know what the norm is out there. You know three to four sets of eight to twelve reps or whatever, and for some people it works fine that's all they need but for other people and I'll include myself in this category who are uh typically hard gainers and I think a lot of us fall in that hard ga- hard gainer um uh, description uh especially for certain muscle groups um that approach doesn't work so what what people like um Lonnie, people like uh, you like you and me have to do is we have to figure out, and Phil, I don't want to leave Phil out of this discussion, um, um, is that we have to figure out, uh, okay, well, that doesn't work so well. That's three to four sets of eight to 12 reps. So, you know, what else can work? And me as, uh, quote, scientist, what I like to do is instead of just banging my head against the desk and going through equations, it's like, okay, well, let's just look at sports where uh, these athletes have developed proportionally large muscle groups. So if I have a client who uh, doesn't respond well to three to four sets of eight to 12 reps for building his or her quadriceps, then I'm going to be like, okay, we need a different approach. And look at speed skaters. Look at cyclists. Neither one of those athletes went into the, to that sport wanting to get huge quads. They, they love the sport. And when you see the percentage of them that have huge quad development, it's very clear, too, that they didn't do that sport because they were born with huge quads. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's – and you can talk to these athletes, too, and they can just, you know, like like I have and just explain to you that, my God, you know, I had skinny legs and I started doing speed skating or cycling or whatever it was and my size just blew up. So then it becomes, all right, so what is it that they're doing – that is that is different than what the norm is for weight training. And that's how all these observations came to be, and that's what I started to build HST on. So there's a happy medium, though, because if I have a client who wants bigger quads, I can't just say, okay, well, you just need to become a cyclist and start, you know, pedaling a bike for four hours every day like they do. Obviously, that's impractical. So how do I bridge that gap? Well, I have to look at it and say, obviously the quads will respond well to very high reps, like a zillion reps, you know, because that's what they're doing. So the quads represent a muscle group that instead of doing that 8 to 12 reps, maybe I should do um, put them on a bike and have them stand up while they're pedaling and give them a lot of resistance and have them do a long set. So this is typically how I'll do it um, to get quad growth. As, and this is one of the mechanisms is I'll have them do uh, – maybe a, a two-and-a-half-minute set straight, and they will just feel like they're going to die, you know, because mm-hmm. of the the accumulation of, of the, the acidification of their muscles and such. That's because their their quads aren't used to it. And then I'll build up that time to go from two-and-a-half to three minutes up to five or six minutes straight. And when I see that, when I see what happens over the course of, like, eight weeks when I build them up to that five minutes, it is really impressive. Like, the the growth, like, some of the fastest growth I've ever seen in the quads is from doing that. So um, that's one way to look at it. But then the other thing is it's like, okay, so you just need a gazillion reps and start working a muscle group every day. Well, if that were true for every muscle group, then collegiate rowers would have enormous biceps. They'd have biceps like rings gymnasts, but they don't. People who do a lot of rowing don't because um, the biceps – as I've learned, do not respond well to very high sets. If I would do that same um, set of parameters for the biceps that I did for the quads, like a two-and-a-half, three-minute set, the biceps would probably, not only would they not grow, they'd probably shrink. Um, because for whatever reason, the biceps seems to be a muscle group that when you build a lot of endurance in it, it actually gets smaller. Um, now, this isn't the case with everyone, but I, I have seen it enough. Um, to know that there is that element, whereas with the quads, I've never seen that. Um, so then the question is, well, certain muscle groups apparently need certain types of parameters to grow. It's just not about doing a gazillion reps and training every day. So the you bicep, know, Chad,
1: if I can just interject, one of the things, yeah. I think there's a lot of simple logic to what you're saying because, for example, biceps aren't what I would call anti-gravity muscles, you know, that are meant to do a lot of repetitions or a a lot of duration kinds of work all day long, whereas your your quads are. You know, you don't collapse during the day because your quads are always loyally, you know, faithfully holding you up. So I can almost see that there is that, you know, series of muscles that would respond really well to the zillion reps that you're talking about, whereas biceps, probably not. I mean, you know, they're just not locomotor muscles on weight-supporting limbs, you know. so Exactly.
3: Yeah. Exactly. I I agree with that. Um, So then back to the biceps. So then I looked at uh, athletes. Well, what athletes have proportionally large biceps? And that's not a very big pool. You know, when you think about athletes that have huge biceps, uh, you know, quadriceps, you can think of downhill skiers, you can think of speed skaters, you can think of cyclists. You think of the biceps and not a lot come to mind. Uh, the one that jumps out to me, who, the, the, the group of athletes who win hands down are the gymnasts who perform the rings. Now, I think, I don't know anyone who would argue with that. I mean, proportionally, their biceps development is mind blowing uh-huh. compared yeah. to the rest of their physique. Consistently. Now, yeah. Right. Now, This goes back to the point that I was saying earlier, though, that um, when you think of athletes have huge biceps, there really aren't many. Mm -hmm. And this kind of answers the question. When you think about rings gymnasts have huge biceps, think about what they're doing. They're doing a lot of static holds with their um, arms fully extended. And in in most cases, it's Mm hyperextended. But they're doing a lot of rings work, a lot of holds, static holds. And what other sport does that? Well, virtually none. You know, you look at speed skating, downhill skiing, and cycling, it's all kind of the same. You know, these long, you know, it, it's, it's kind of the same. Whereas when you look, when you think about what these guys have to do on the rings, there's, you know, really no other sport that challenges the biceps in that way. But then it becomes very clear that the biceps need high intensity, high tension uh, contractions to grow. That's what they grow best with. So when you look at the rings, That's about the most extreme example of high-tension work that the biceps can possibly do. And obviously, the biceps respond really well to it. So this is part of what my HFT program is. I had to figure out what muscle groups needed what type of stimulus for optimal growth. So that's where this all started. And then I had to figure out what level of volume it started at And then I had to figure out how to progress it so you're not destroying the joints and all that. And this is why it it literally took me um, 10 years before I felt comfortable enough to release something called HFT and put my name on it and have it be a whole program because I started experimenting with this in 2002 and wrote about it, you know, over the years. But I didn't really have the handle on it that I wanted in terms of all the major muscle groups until about a year, a year and a half ago.
1: Well, it seems to me that fine-tuning the resistance part of this had to be key because I'm going to ask you two devil's advocate questions here.
3: Please do. I love is, those questions because then uh, it really lets me explain how I got to where I am <laughs> this the, the, the parameters.
1: Okay. So. so the first one would be, you know, but marathoners do a zillion reps. Why don't they have huge legs?
3: That's a very good uh, point, and I uh, actually address that in the book. And the first thing I'll say is, the the quadriceps um the amount of stimulation they're getting with running is it's pretty low I mean if they were running if they were uh touching their back knee to the ground every time they took a stride, mm-hmm. I think you would see um, much different results uh in terms of their their growth and obviously that would make it much more intense so That's, that's my point. There needs to be a certain level of intensity and the muscle needs to be trained through a greater range of motion because when you're running, it's just the, you know, the amount of, um, the amount of knee flexion is, is, is minimal. So that's the first thing. Well, the second thing though is you have to look at the whole system together. You have to look at the physiology of muscle growth and you have to appreciate that people who do long distance running are um, elevating a lot of their, um, catabolic hormones. Yeah. So even, even if, um, they were doing an exercise that was a type of movement that, that challenges the quads more, they're just, they're doing so much work and, and then you have to, uh, they're, they're doing so much low intensity cardio, which we all know can be really hard on the, Adrenals and it can elevate cortisol, it can, you know, decrease uh, the anabolic hormones and all that. So you have to take that into consideration, too. Um, So what I'm saying, though, is that I think if you took, if you did that same type of work, that same amount of reps that someone does running and just had them be seated and do some type of lat exercise, uh, I think the lats would grow a lot, whereas the quads don't grow in running. I think the lats would grow a lot because it wouldn't have that overall more catabolic effect on the physiology like long-distance running does. And then the other thing you have to consider, too, is a lot of runners, they don't want to be bigger. So they're, they might not be getting adequate nutrition and adequate protein go. and all these other factors that come into play.
1: Yeah, that's what I was. The first thing I think of is they're depleting the glycogen. They have flat, glycogen depleted muscles. They're not eating a lot of calories. They're in it, almost certainly, at least at times, in a in a negative calorie state. You know what I mean? Which so would be that's that's rough. It, whereas what you're saying, I'm, go ahead, Phil.
2: I was just going to say it'd be an interesting study for you to do. You need to find a group of runners that will purposely overfeed themselves and gain weight and see if they gain, you know. Because the, then they'd be progressively adding resistance to their runs as they put weight on their bodies. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> well, I'll tell you,
1: the two things that I see with, with some of this is, um, one is, yes, what you're suggesting then, Chad, and correct me if I'm wrong, but um, it's not just a zillion reps, but it's a zillion reps with added resistance or a certain amount of intensity or explosion um, involved, whereas that's not wh- where you see, what you see in a very continuous rote kind of movement that runners do like you said it could be range of motion but a you know the intensity isn't there or the explosiveness isn't there whereas you're suggesting a zillion reps spread out so you can remain explosive and the other thing is the energy status of these of these guys is just very poor whereas you'd have your guys purposely trying to keep their calories up right
3: Right, right. So there's two things I want to address with what you just said. The first thing is that you mentioned the explosiveness, and that's certainly a factor. But it's – and I was thinking about that when I started dealing with these parameters. But actually, a more accurate way to say it would be high tension. So it's not that explosiveness is really necessary, because if you look at the gymnasts who do the rings, there's not a lot of explosive work, but there's a lot of tension. Okay. So – I think tension is really the key factor here. And, of course, explosiveness and tension, they can go hand in hand. But you can't be really explosive. Um, It's hard to be explosive all the time. So it's just about getting adequate tension. Um, And the second thing, and I like it, like I said, Lonnie, when you and uh, my other colleagues uh, play the devil's advocate role because that's what really makes me um, have to sort through all this. And I'll tell you, there's no – uh, tougher critic on me than myself and I really ask every possible question to myself when I started dealing with this and getting back to the running example you know you're asking why their quads aren't big well as I said you, it's kind of easy to see why they don't get big because they're not really getting that stimulated um, because of just what you're loading and you're in your there's minimal knee flexion whereas you know in speed skating there's a lot more you know flexion so But a good, a great question that I had to address was, well, why aren't the calves of marathon runners huge? Because there's a perfect example of a muscle group that's getting a lot of volume, a lot of work, and it's being challenged. You know, every time you, you know, land, your calves are being stimulated. And then that's when I had to look at it as being that um, maybe the calves um, need a type of training that's more uh, neurologically challenging because here's what I had to figure out. Marathon runners, none of those guys have big calves. Um, But if you think about an elite soccer player and how much they're running around the field, I mean, they do a lot, a lot of running. So it's kind of comparable, um, not as much volume as a marathon runner, but it's kind of comparable. They're running around all day long and all, I mean, you're hard pressed to find a soccer player who doesn't have incredible calf development if they if that's their sport. So then it was kind of uh, then I had to deal with all right. Well, what are they doing that marathon runners aren't doing? Because we both know they're doing a gazillion reps, um, but you think about the demands of soccer. They have to stop. They have to do lateral shift. They run backwards. They run forward. They stop. They sprint. They you know go side to side. So that's when, um, if you you think about the function of the ankle joint, um, obviously a joint that's that's built for mobility, so it can move in a lot of different directions, unlike the biceps, unlike the elbow joint. So then it was like, okay, well, I think the calves need some type of stimulus that's really challenging where they have to, um, where it's just not this continuous, slow, um, low-intensity contraction, they obviously will grow well if they have to be challenged uh, in stu- for stability. And the other thing is that um, they also respond very well to explosive work because let's think about another group of athletes who have incredible um, calf development, and that, those would be sand volleyball players. And I get to see this all the time because where I live in Southern California, it's, you know, one of the meccas for sand volleyball because Manhattan Beach is just south of here and that's where they have all those tournaments. So, I get to know these guys and see them play and, you know, see their calf development. And I'll tell you, there's nothing more explosive than sand volleyball in terms of what they have to do. You know, it's, it's just you're either standing there or you're sprinting to the ball or you're jumping up and landing. And that made me realize that, um, too, that the calves, first of all, if you think of a soccer player, they're starting, stopping, going side to side. Uh, so it's very challenging, um, neurologically, very challenging stability, and then the calves respond very well to, um, explosive work and especially eccentric loading. I think, um, a key component of that for people who do a lot of jumping is the landing phase, um, and that eccentric overload and that yielding effect that the calves uh, respond well to for growth. Mm-hmm.
1: I'll, I'll tell you, one of the things that I'm, I'm sort of detecting that you're saying is whether it's, You know, the high tension on the biceps in a gymnast or the the high degree of, you know, leg flexion in a speed skater or like what you're talking about with calves. There seems to be a a necessity for novelty in some of this. I mean, uh, running, you know, is a locomotor pattern that everybody's sort of built to do mechanically. You know, and there's nothing that novel, but now when you're hopping on one leg and like you said, you're changing locomotion backwards, laterally, all this in soccer, you're doing something that's not an everyday event. You know, or certainly guys on the rings with all that intensity in their biceps, these are, these are more novel, you know, as opposed to something that's almost God given in a way, for lack of a better saying that, you know, but, um, Anyway that w- that was just a thought that I had. Let me ask you one other one now here's a devil 's advocate question uh and Phil, you can chime in on anything that you uh, think about this too of course but um so if frequency is very important, if the number of repetitions either under you know a fair amount of intensity or explosiveness one or the other is important um Would this mean that whole body circuit training, if you could do it four or five times a week, would actually be superior to heavy lifting? What do you think?
3: First of all, it it depends on how you define circuit training because um, when we think of circuit training, um, us older guys, we think of the 80s bodybuilding magazines. When you saw circuit training, you thought of, okay, these are light weights, super high reps, and little rest. Between sets, Correct. right? So, yes. so you have five or six exercises and you just do a bunch of reps and almost like you'd see in one of these, you know, classes you go to, uh, with light dumbbells, you just go from exercise to exercise. Well, my, uh, full body workouts for athletes, when I want them to develop pure strength, maximal strength, uh, they're set up in a circuit fashion. I almost always do some type of circuit fashion. Uh, in other words they'll start with the, the example i always give is a chin dip and deadlift so it's one of my one of the my favorite circuits so that chin dip deadlift i can arrange that for pure maximal strength i can arrange it for endurance i can arrange it for uh hypertrophy And how I arrange it just depends on how much rest I put between the exercises, how much load they're doing for the exercises, and how many reps they're doing. So, for instance, for pure maximal strength, you could do um, three reps of each exercise. So you do three reps of the chin-up, and then you might rest a minute and do three reps of the dip, rest a minute, and do three reps of the deadlift, and then repeat that three to five times. That's a maximal strength workout, but that's a, quote, that's quote like circuit training in a lot of people's mind, but I don't want to I don't want to hammer too much on the semantics of this because um, I I understand your point. Um, what you're saying is, you know, so would circuit training be great for HFT? Well, what I'm but what I'm really
1: my, getting at here is, you know, based on the mechanism here, that if if someone does, let's say, use sixty percent of their one rep max, and they go, you know, through a progression of let's say machines, you know, but they they are in fact doing it four or five times a week. Um, that would be more frequency, more reps. Are those guys going to be bigger than the heavy lifters that recover a lot?
3: Well, yeah, I mean, the the short answer is yes, but, but if you threw in the like machine exercises and all that, I'm I'm immediately like comparing them to guys who are doing a heavy deadlift and, you know, heavy push presses and all that. So if we compare apples to apples in terms of exercise selection, um, Yes, just stimulating the muscles more more often will lead to more growth um so yeah if we if we just simplify it and say that, a guy who's lifting heavy and uh um, let's say train his back once or twice a week with heavy lifting is not gonna grow as fast as another guy who's training his upper back uh four or five times a week with let's say sixty percent of his one rep max if the parameters are right, and that's why that's why I didn't. Again, this took 10 years to put this all together because everything I say when I'm explaining this, is like, well, but there has to be the right amount of volume. There has to be progression. There has to be all these other factors. But generally speaking, yes. And the reason is because it goes back to the me- mechanisms that lead to muscle growth. And I think this is um, a really important fact I want to get into, uh, Lonnie and Phil, that I uh, we didn't get into last time. You know, the question is, well, how, do, how does muscle grow? And we know that after a challenging bout of resistance exercise, our muscle fibers are damaged and they need repair. And that repair process starts from a group of uh, muscle stem cells, or satellite cells. And these normally just sit quietly in your muscle, but once the damage occurs, then these satellite cells get activated, rush to the site of damage, and then they initiate the muscle growth and repair process. So that's what happens after you do a sufficient Workout with resistance training. So the fibers are damaged. The satellite cells rush to the side of damage. And then they uh, they donate uh, nuclei where the muscle fiber then can grow. So the issue then is that's the repair process. That's the repair and growth process. So then the question is how many times can you do that and not totally burn yourself out? Or you can look at it the other way and say that stimulating that process twice a week is not going to be as um, effective as stimulating that process five times per week, provided you can recover. Mm-hmm. So that's why I say that even if you're lifting heavy, yeah, you lift heavy, you do a lot of muscle damage, you're going to have the satellite cells go to the site of damage, donate the nuclei, but you're going to do that twice a week. The guy who does it four or five times a week, he's going to have that process happen four or five times. And this is just not, you know, this isn't just all hypothesis. I mean, I've seen this time and time again, and sometimes I have to use extreme examples, but it still gets the point across. Um, I was looking at uh, a guy who had severe dysfunction. I wasn't, he wasn't one of my clients. I was actually looking at a paper on this. Um and he had uh his essentially his left glute and hamstrings shut down completely. So, you know, walking hip extension was like his hip extensors were just not they were just not functioning on the left side. So essentially what happened, we all know the body's the most um it's it's the the biggest compensatory machine there is. It's just gonna find ways to compensate when things aren't working correctly. So essentially what happened on his left side is since his glutes and hamstrings couldn't extend his hip His calf had to essentially start working as a hip extensor, and I know that sounds weird because, you know, the calves aren't anywhere near the hip, but that's essentially the role his calf, his left calf was going to have to play. And his left calf grew so big, so fast because of this extreme amount of tension and work it had to do because it didn't have the glutes and hamstrings helping it, that he had this proportionally large left calf. So this, again, that's an extreme example, but it just goes back to the point that if you work a muscle more often and it has sufficient tension, it's going to grow faster, and it can grow really fast. But, you know, you don't want to push it too too far too fast because then you can, you know, uh, injure a joint and things like that. But this goes back to this repair process, and it seems, based on research, that uh, mechano-growth factor, NGF, is um, what's really important for replenishing this group, this group of satellite cells. Um, it's hypothesized that one of the reasons why older people have uh, less muscle mass is because they essentially have less MGF in their muscles. So um, and MGF, again, is responsible for uh, replenishing this pool of satellite cells, so, um, which is essential for the growth and repair process. So some really interesting research by um, Doctors Hill and Goldspink, um, they were looking at MGF, they're kind of the, the pioneers in all this, and they took these people, these older individuals who expressed less MGF because, again, it seems to be a, a something that decreased with age, and they uh, restored their MGF levels through intramuscular injections and they found a marked increase in strength and muscle mass. And so that Kind of confirm their hypothesis, but then it's like, okay, well, yeah, it worked for older people, but what about healthy younger tissue? Well, then they did a study where um, they took uh, healthy muscle, muscle tissue uh, that it wasn't diseased, um, and they injected it with MGF, and they got bigger and stronger. So this, you know, w- there, there's no certainties in research, but this pretty much is as is, is much as you can. Um, leads to the statement that if you increase MGF, then you'll increase muscle mass. Or if you increase, you know, its role in muscle. So the way I look at high-frequency training is if you compare two workouts per week for the biceps, let's say, um, you'll get two releases of MGF. Um, You'll have two repair processes. If you can do it five times, then you're going to have MGF released five times. And um, you know five re- growth and repair processes. So to me, it's just kind of a numbers game. It's just like just makes perfect sense. It's like okay, well that's who knows if MGF is a key player if something else comes in science. But all we can do is uh, talk about what research shows, what the latest research shows. And that's if people want like a scientific explanation, that's about the best one I can give them is that these pulses of MGF help lead to more muscle growth, and the pulse only happens after you do resistance training. So if you can do more bouts of resistance training for that muscle group, then you're going to get more pulses of NGF, and then you should uh, create more growth.
1: I think it's it's a good bit of education for listeners to hear that. Usually, I think when, when we think about anabolism, our thoughts immediately go to systemic testosterone or GH or maybe something that's catabolic and we don't want too much around like cortisol, but I think it's educational to actually think about local expression of growth factors like this, you know, and it's not always a systemic endocrine thing, but it could be a paracrine or an autocrine thing that's going on with all this,
3: right? Absolutely. And we all know that the physiology is the study of how all these, all the systems work together. So it's never going to be just one or the other. It's never going to be just the endocrine system or just what's expressed in the muscle. They all play a role but we're going to assume that the people who listen to this are educated in uh, in uh nutrition thanks to your guys' great work, and they're going to have adequate um, protein intake and healthy fats and glycogen and all that. So we can just assume that in, in that part of the system it has the tools it needs. So then – uh or the building blocks would be another way to look at it. The building blocks are available to build your muscles bigger, but now we have to give – uh, the physiology, a reason to uh, start this growth and repair process more frequently. And that's you know, where... and
1: just as evidence for what you're saying, I think if we did blood draws, and I haven't seen research on this, but let's say we did a blood draw on the testosterone levels of gymnasts. I don't think you're going to see that gymnasts, you know, and let's face it. I mean, biceps, yes, but vast ranges of their upper body are very hypertrophied. I bet you're not going to see extremely high testosterone levels in all these guys. And that suggests that it might be something more local,
3: you know. So I would agree.
0: Yeah. I would
3: agree. Um, I mean, especially because, um, you know, these guys, and I'm around I'm around them every week, uh, multiple times every week, and I'll tell you that um, – you know, staying clean in that sport is it's really, really important because um, what, what I'm getting at, Lonnie, is you know in bodybuilding things like that, of course there's rampant drug use and all that, but in sports where they get a lot of hypertrophy and you know that there's the likelihood of them taking exogenous testosterone and all that, it's it's much lower. And then you see this incredible development on top of it. You're right. It's not just because their testosterone's higher or whatever. It's because something they are doing this mechanical damage. They are creating, within their muscles, it's releasing some type of process. It's probably the process similar to what I uh, explained before is leading to this this really uh, terrific muscle growth.
1: Right. And I want to mention something about damage, too, in just a second. But, Phil, you had something to say?
2: Yeah, I just wanted to, so, at some point, of course, the, the caveat is that as long as you can recover. Right. Right. Um, so how do we take into account, like, if I took somebody and said, okay, we're going to come in and we're going to do, you're a 315 deadlifter. We're going to do 70% of your deadlift, which is what, 250, 220, whatever. Um, so we're going to do that. We're going to do it four times a week. Um, and this person's recovering fine from it. How do we take into account for somebody that's more advanced? Let's say, you know, okay, an 800-pound deadlifter comes in. And now they're, they're 70% while it's still 70% of their whole is now five 60, 50, yeah. 560, you know, that in itself, just because they're advanced, it's going to take more recovery. How, how, do, how do you adjust for that? You know, I mean, because, you know, percentages don't always pan out. Right, right. I know. know what you're saying regarding training uh, status. And, no, I do agree. We get better at recovering as we train and get better at training. But there's a point where it just takes more time to recover from heavy, heavy stuff.
3: Um, right. You know, I, i'm glad you asked that question phil um because th- this comes up a lot now the thing with h f t is the the parameters i set up the way i look at h f t it's for muscle growth mm-hmm. you can get other you know you can get other benefits you could Possibly you could increase muscle endurance if you want to. Like, for instance, if you yeah. get someone, if you use HFT to build someone's pull-ups and take it from 12 rep max to 30 rep max, obviously you're building endurance, but you can build a lot of muscle in the process. Yeah. Now, the, the the tricky part is when people start applying what I say to big, heavy, uh like power lifts. Yeah. And I say uh, right from the start of my book, I say HFT and maximal strength training do not mix. Yeah. They absolutely do not mix. Um, the other thing is HFT and movements like the deadlift or the or the barbell squat or things like that, I don't use HFT for that because it is yeah. too demanding. Um, it has to be – HFT is going to be more appropriate. It's not for, uh, like, having a power lifter increase his deadlift. It's more appropriate for he wants to add muscle to yeah. his hamstrings or his glutes or whatever for whatever reason. And yeah. then I have parameters set up to address that because you're right. You can't lift 70%, 60% or 70% of your deadlift, you know, five, six, seven times yeah. a week, you're going to get burned out. You're not going to be able to lift heavy the other time. So I don't apply it in that way. Gotcha. Um, so what, it, virtually every uh, lower body exercise, um, we'll say for like the gob, except for like the goblet squat, is some mm-hmm. type of single limb exercise, Okay. you know, because it's less, less demanding um, on the uh, on recovery and things like that. So again, it's it's about this this power lifter wants to build his glutes or his hamstrings or whatever, and then he'll do a specific protocol HFT protocol with that exercise I prescribe five six seven times per week. But he's not no, going that, to
2: touch the, yeah. the That left. makes sense. And you know, I mean, the other thing I, I was going to mention earlier when Lonnie said you know was talking about um, it sounds like a, this a lot of this stuff lends to to novel exercises things like that. The, the thing that Immediately jumped out at me was, you know, the moves you're talking about, like the, I don't know, holding an iron cross and things like that, um, when you break it down into a physics aspect, it seemed a lot like what I do, say, with my power lifters and things like that. When we purposely, uh, we do a good morning or something like that. We're, we're adding, we're adding load by purposely putting somebody in a, in a, from a pure physics point of view, in a worse position because the bars shifted way out from their center of gravity and things like that. So we're increasing the intensity without putting more load on right. the Like The
1: resistance arm the, is The longer.
2: resistance arm is a lot longer. Mm-hmm. Um, no, and that's, that was interesting hearing that, you know, doing holds and things that these guys', these guys arms are, are purposely. And that's where it kind of instantly hit me that, you know, it's, it's upping the amount of, of assistance work we do type of thing. Um, for growth, because I mean, from a people, a lot of people don't realize this, but you know, a lot of the work powerlifters do, especially in off season and things like that, and strength athletes is is to get bigger, and, and you know, um, you know that more tissue is going to be more stable, and a lot of that stuff we do is a lot of reps and, and things that in, in very precarious positions like that. But right. no, interesting. So
1: um, I was, I just wanted to make a quick comment about the injury thing. Well, in my dissertation, I actually. Uh, I put people through extreme eccentric, uh, muscle trauma, you know, micro trauma. I had them run downhill for, um, 45 to 60 minutes and, and we were actually looking how long it took for, you know, the different physiological variables to recover. And some of the stuff didn't recover for three, four, even five days. Some of the, the leukocyte subsets, white cells, uh, monocytes in particular still weren't reset. so I, I think one of the, one of the keys with a lot of this stuff is like Chad is saying it, it takes a long time to sort of fine tune these progression models because if you get too intense and I can appreciate too intense from a nervous system approach, um, but even from a tissue damage model uh you 'd have to be careful on some level with how you um, try to progress this because you could even end up with you know such a such a, a mass of you know, uh, scrambled muscle fibers under the microscope and infiltrated white cells and everything that you could end up with, uh, you know, really long recovery times if you didn't progress it properly, I think.
3: Yeah, but I will say this on top of that. Even with all this experimentation and research and all these clients I've worked with for the past 10 years doing these HFT protocols and trying to fine-tune them, I will say this, though even with me starting them out on relatively low volume and slowly building up the volume and then slowly building up the frequency, the first two weeks when you do HFT for a body part, let's say again, you want to build your arms and upper back and you use the pull-ups and I have you start doing the pull-ups four or five times per week. First two weeks, you're going to be sore all the time in those muscles. You're going to be fatigued. Your strength is going to drop some workouts. The first two weeks are tough, but then and this is like across the board. This is older, younger, fit, less fit. It's the, like the two-week mark. And there's like something magical that happens. And then you can just start doing the pull-up like on a daily basis, and you never get sore. You never get sore, and you can uh, just keep increasing the volume, again, in a systematic way. And then your recovery, your local recovery ability, for reasons I can't explain Yet, because the research just doesn't show it. I mean, I could, yeah. I could hypothesize about, you know, increased capillarization and increased expression of certain genes in the muscles for local muscle recovery, but it, it doesn't matter. The bottom line is, after about two weeks, then people, I've received so many letters, people are like, God, I can't believe I'm just, I don't even get sore anymore. I'm doing bite, I'm doing pull-ups every day, and I don't even get sore anymore. And, uh, I, uh, uh two years ago, I did, um, uh, pull-ups every day for 187 days straight. Um, <laughs> I did I did pull-ups, push-ups, and lunges every day for 187 days straight. I stopped at, started January 1st and uh, went until July 1st, my birthday. And I just built up the volume. Um, I started with uh, 20 reps of each on day one, just added a, a rep all the way um, each day. And, uh, yeah, I, I was the same thing. I mean, about four weeks into it, no matter what I would do, uh, for the pull up, no matter how hard I could train it, if someday I just wanted to go really heavy and do a lot of volume and reps, I wouldn't get sore. And it was yeah. so cool. And my upper body development was, it was just, people were saying, <laughs> I had, I got some interesting comments about just yeah. how fast my upper body was growing from all that. And it's, it's, just, it's very cool. It's very cool. But this gets back to my point though is regardless of all this, the first two weeks, the first 10 days, it's, it's you're going to feel sore you're going to feel fatigued but then once the body starts to catch up uh it's it's going to be uh, pretty cool so this gets back to the point of you're saying Lonnie is you know you look at uh you do this study with this eccentric overload this downhill running and you see this muscle damage and you're looking inside of it and you're like oh my god you know it's taking four or five days for the muscle to recover but it it almost might be like uh the addition of doing um MRI or, or as soon as the, the low back doctors will be, were able to view someone's spine and discs, they're seeing all this damage and all this mm-hmm. potential dysfunction. They didn't realize that, well, that's actually probably normal. Yeah. You know, it's, you're expecting it to look like how it shouldn't look. You know, there should be, you, there, there are sometimes some discs, <sighs> you know, all that that doesn't need it. And with this, with this research you're doing, you know, people muscles are still damaged, but Like with HFT, you're going to be training it again before it's fully recovered the first few weeks. Right. And it's that mechanism that forces the physiology to upregulate its local repair processes. Because as I say, if you train a muscle group twice a week, it has no reason to recover faster than twice a week. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
2: No, hell, I mean, you see that in the real world. I worked concrete for a lot of years. The first two weeks I did it, it was horrible. Yeah, and then you get real good at it. Hey, guys, then, yeah, like you said,
1: let me so. let me offer this, Chad. If you ever want data, I actually uh did a sort of a validation work, and we're just about out of time. But Priscilla Clarkson, listeners, if you're interested, she did a lot of work with repeat eccentric trauma and looked at a lot of the same things that we're talking about here, and uh, you know, weakness, soreness, white blood cell infiltration, swelling, all this sort of thing. And I actually did that with repeat bouts with using negatives in the squat. Um, and you will see that, what, what her group calls an armor plating effect, whereas they can look at tissue damage markers like creatine kinase, you know, classic things. And um, they go down with, with successive insults, you know, if, if you want to call it that. And uh, we actually looked over the course of uh, months in between and, Indeed, when you keep exposing someone to that same kind of what was initially a brutal stimulus, mm-hmm. um, they don't keep dumping enzymes like creatine kinase into their blood. They don't get as sore. They don't get as swollen. And that whole armor plating effect thing, you know, I just saw it firsthand. I mean, I just thought that was very cool. Yeah. So what Chad's saying is, is very true. I mean, uh, in research, when we look at eccentric trauma, we're often taking people and we're exposing them to the to the exercise about once, yeah, um, you know, but that's what's cool to look actually over a series of months because you really do see that armor plating effect. That you I'm know, sure we've all
2: seen it hundreds of times. With you know, you get a new client who hasn't done anything in ten years. I don't care what I can make them walk in here and they're sore the next day, but a month later they're doing five times that work and they're not sore. Right, like we all <laughs> say, you know, the body is yeah. such an adaptive <laughs> machine, like yeah. Chad was saying. So. So,
3: Yeah, and I'm sure that there's some element of protein synthesis upregulation that helps with the body, helps the body deal with this uh, or create this armor plating because that's what HFT is all about, making the muscle work more often, and then having the the muscle, having the body add muscle tissue in the process, and that's the great side effect. And you know, the last point I'll say is what we all like to talk about are guys who train in prison. There you go. You can always go back to that. You know, terrible nutrition. They're doing like the same things day in and day out. But they're obviously, you know, muscle growth can take place. Your body can adapt, and you can grow muscle even in those terrible conditions nutritionally. You know, training very frequently.
1: Right on. We'll have to ask Rob about that. <laughs> he watches those guys do that. He's a he's a guard, right? He's a prison guard. Yeah.
2: So. so okay. Right, guys, that's it. All
1: right. Yeah, we are we are over a little bit, Chad. So thanks so much for coming on again. We really do
3: appreciate it. Yeah. Oh, it's it's my pleasure, guys. I'll come on anytime. I love talking to you both. Oh,
1: we'll uh, we'll we'll tap you on different topics when we need your expertise. Because I mean, there's yeah, so much sure. with power and strength that's neural, uh, you know. And my focus is just not neural, you know. Yeah. So we may have to uh, watch for the bat signal. We'll call. Yeah, there
2: one. you go.
3: All right, I'm here for you guys. Talk to you later. Thank you.
1: sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. Hey, ironradio.org listeners, this is Lonnie Lowry, and I'm just bringing you a sneak peek only for Iron Radio listeners at this point. If you Google CRC Press, Lowry L-O-W-E-R-Y, and Protein, you can be some of the first people on the planet to see this book. It's specifically for strength athletes, Everything on the safety of high-protein diets, the efficacy, the dosing, the types, practical applications, and case studies. This is a textbook. It's not what I would call an industry book. This is not pseudoscience. This is the the state-of-the-art science. And if someone wants to critique you on your extra protein intake, this will be something you can hold up and say, this is what the literature says about stressed kidneys or bone loss or gout or dehydration or